uh, came late today, um, let me tell you that it was my intention in honor of Reformation Day to wear my Genevan gown, and when I got here, was horrified to find that it was at home because of a graduation ceremony that I uh, participated in. So, you know, the whole time that I've been up here, when people came in late, I'm wondering if people are judging me, saying the pastor had the evil courage to be up in the pulpit without a jacket on. But it's just because I forgot my gown. So, so in honor of Reformation Day, as I said before, if you'll just imagine me in a Geneva gown as, uh, as I preach today. But uh, it was 504 years ago today that an Augustinian monk uh, went to the church bulletin board in a college town, and he posted a screed that he entitled Disputatio Pro Declaratione Virtutis Indulgentiarum. Now, you probably know that monk as Martin Luther and his disputatio simply by the description of what it was, 95 theses. Uh, The disputed theses had to do with the actions and the policies of the Pope, particularly at the time Pope Leo X. really didn't have very much to do with doctrine. And though most historians uh, note that instance, that event, as the start of the Protestant Reformation, the real issue of the Reformation would come to be one of doctrine, specifically the relationship between the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. And the doctrine of justification has to do with the question of how are we made acceptable to God? On what basis does God accept us? That's the question. Sanctification has to do with our being restored to the holiness for which God originally created us. And you know, everybody on all sides agreed that both of those things were necessary. The question was, what was the relationship between the two of them? Rome had taught and still teaches, essentially, that our justification before God rests upon our sanctification. That God accepts us to the degree that we are holy, that we conform to His holiness. Now, the Reformation, going back to the Bible and reading some of the things that they saw there, maintained something different. They maintained that God accepts us based upon what Christ has done and accepts us solely through faith, by grace, through faith, apart from any works, apart from any law-keeping, apart from any holiness or goodness on our part, but that that holiness will come as a result of God accepting us in Christ. The question is an important one. It's important, certainly, for how we relate to God. If we think that God will accept us to the degree that we don't sin... Right? I think that's a kind of a common thought of people. Well, God accepts me to the degree that I don't sin. Um, if that is the case, then we're going to do either one of two things. If we're people who are disposed to being honest, we'll just kind of give up in despair of any kind of relationship with God. If God is going to accept me based on how holy I am, 
and I'm honest with myself, and I realize how far short I fall, um, then what's the use? Or we'll try to convince ourselves that we have no sin. We're not bad sin. I'm not as bad a sinner as my neighbor. And so God will therefore accept me. But getting the gospel right is also necessary for relating to one another. And I want to read to you today from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. This is God's word. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. This is the word of God. Father, we pray today as we come to you uh, by that one spirit through Christ that, Lord, you would be at work in us to give us a better understanding of the gospel and uh, in it not only how through it we may love you with all our heart, mind, and soul, and strength, but also how we may love our neighbor as ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Martin Luther once said about good works, God does not need my good works. My neighbor does. And You know, we could say the same thing about good doctrine. God doesn't need our good doctrine, but our neighbor does. I think a danger that plagues the spiritual descendants of the Reformation um, is the notion that we'll be saved by our good doctrine. That God will save us because we're smarter or better informed or uh, better educated or or more precise than those who don't quite get it. Or in other words, we'll be saved by our works. Not our physical works, our theological works, but our works nonetheless. Some time ago in a sermon, Alistair Begg pointed out He said, without the gospel every day, we will quickly revert to justification before God by faith plus works. And as he was talking about that, Beg pointed to the thief crucified next to Jesus, and he told a kind of a parable. He he pictured this man then to whom Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, standing at the gates of heaven and being questioned by angels. And uh, in, in Begg's parable, the angel said, well, are you clear on the, justi- on the doctrine of justification by faith? And the thief said, never heard of it. And he said, well, well what's your doctrine of scripture? And the man just looked at him with a blank stare. And they finally said to him, look, on what basis are you here? And the man replied, the man on the middle cross said I could come.
faith in Jesus is what God requires. My works do not affect God. God is not enriched by my good works, and he's not diminished by my sin. But my neighbor is enriched by my good works, and my neighbor is diminished by my sin. And in a similar way, understanding the gospel is vital to my relationship to others. The gospel is the good news that God reconciled us to himself in the death of his son. Understanding the gospel is the basis for being able to be truly reconciled to others. And let me show you. The gospel is the good news that God reconciled us to himself in the death of his son. Now, the, the subject of the gospel, the good news, that's what gospel means, the subject of the gospel, how we are accepted by God, is Christ. And so the scriptures say things like this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 19. God reconciled us to himself through Christ. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. In Colossians 1.22, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And understand that God does not reconcile the reconcilable. What the Bible tells us is that God reconciles his enemies. So in Romans 5.10, we read that while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more then, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Two verses before that, in verse 8, he told us that God demonstrates his son toward us in this, that while we were yet sinners, we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. And why was it, by the way, that the Son of God had to die? Well, because we're told in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. Sin cuts us off from God. God is the source of life. We confess it this morning in the Nicene Creed. The Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. 700 years before the fact... The prophet Isaiah put it this way. It sounds like he could have been standing at the foot of the cross as he wrote it. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And all of this, you see, is that the foundation of what the Bible tells us of how God justifies us, how he accepts us, that, that God loves us for what he is, not for what we are or what we do. We can't change ourselves enough to merit the love and acceptance of God. But in the love and acceptance of God, we can and we will change. 
And so the gospel, when we really grasp it, sets us free. Sets us free from uh, bondage to self-justification. Of always trying to convince ourselves and others and God that our sin uh, isn't really sin. It's not really that bad. It sets us free from the uncertainty of whether knowing uh, about God's disposition, whether it changes toward us, depending on how we're doing that day. You know, I don't know about you. No, actually, I think I do know about you, if you're like me at all, and I imagine that you are, that there will be times that you'll get up and, um, and, and boy, you'll just know the Lord's presence, and you'll be walking with Him, and, uh, and things will come up, and it just seems like you're, you're doing the right thing, you're walking in the will of God, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and you think, this is great, God's brought me to this point, this is how it is from now on, right? And, and then the next day comes. And, and, and you find yourself not trusting and responding to people in angry or surly ways, and your conscience tells you that something's wrong. And the gospel sets us free from having to wonder, does God's disposition toward me change day to day to day, depending on how I'm doing? And it lets us know that, that no, God's disposition toward us doesn't have to do with us. It has to do with him. It's not what we are. It's who he is and what Christ has done. The Apostle Paul said it this way in... Ephesians 2.15, that he's abolished in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. Now, please understand that Paul's not saying there that God no longer has any standards, that, that there are no more commandments. That's not what he's saying. But what it does mean is that in Christ, the law and our inability to do it can't keep us from God. And Paul writes this in Colossians 2.13. He said, when you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He's taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And God justifies us on the basis of what Christ has done, because of who he is and because of his love which he's demonstrated for us in Christ. And he does it through faith, simply through trust in a person. And so we read in Romans 5.1, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's it, that's the whole gospel. We've been justified through faith, and so we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But to make sure that we get that, Paul writes to the church at Galatia, the churches at Galatia, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one 
may boast. The gospel is the good news that God reconciled us to himself in the death of his son. Understanding the gospel is the basis for being truly reconciled to one another. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And the issue that he's talking about here is the relationship of Jews and Gentiles within the body of Christ, um, between whom there was oftentimes animosity. Now, sometimes it was a hot animosity. You see a hot animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Sometimes it was a cooler animosity that would make its way into the church. In Acts chapter 6, we read about the church being together and the church is uh, caring for the widow in their, uh, in, widows in their midst. And it talks about the Hellenistic Jews being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. What was happening is that you had two groups of believers in the church. Both of them were Jewish, but some of them were from Judea and were very culturally Jewish. You could tell by looking at them that they were Jewish. The others culturally looked like Gentiles, looked like Greeks. They had adopted the dominant culture around them. And, and when it came time to caring for the widows of those two groups, perhaps uh, unintentionally, imperceptibly, focus was placed upon the, um, the Judaistic Jews, for lack of a better word, and the Hellenistic Jews were being ignored. And so this has to do with that relationship between Jews and Gentiles, but it's applicable to any animosity that we encounter. Christ is at the foundation of our peace for any animosity that you encounter, for racial animosity, for cultural animosity, for political animosity, for personal animosity that you might have toward others. Paul says he's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. And understand that he's talking here now not about the dividing wall of hostility between ourselves and God. That's already been taken care of. He's talking about between people. He's destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between each other by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments. What's Paul saying? He's saying that the death of Christ is not only the basis of our peace with God, it's the basis of our peace with one another. That's significant. Peace with God is not based on me. Peace with God is based on who Christ is and what he has done, right? And so, my ability... To have peace with others in Christ is not based on others. It's based on who I am in Christ. Paul writes to the church at Colossae in Colossians 3. He says, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, 
but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And here is where getting the gospel right matters. What's your justification before God grounded upon? Is it grounded upon how good you are? Is it grounded upon that your sins are not as bad as other people's sins? Based on Christ. And Paul says here in Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave you. You see, apart from understanding, listen, you have forgiveness the the world over. People will talk about forgiveness outside the church. Forgiveness is not something we only find in the church. But apart from understanding the gospel, to the degree that we can forgive and, and be reconciled to others, we do so, listen, by being able to identify with them in their particular sin. If, if their sin is something that I can understand because, be, because I myself am tempted to it, uh, in other words, if I can see my own weakness in that person, th- th- then I can forgive their sin. Uh, I, I get it. But if I don't understand the gospel and how God forgives me and justifies me and receives me, that is where my forgiveness of others is going to end. If a person sins in a way that is beyond the pale, it's, it's beyond what I in a million years could ever imagine myself doing or even think of doing, then I won't be able to find it in myself to forgive. Without understanding the gospel, there will come a line which you can't cross. A point at which you'll say, I could never do that. I can't understand it, and I can't forgive you. But when we turn to the gospel, what we see is the absolute holiness of God and His grace in the gospel. And it lets us see a God who looks at your sins, right? The sins that you think understandable, the sins that you think reasonable, the sins that you think justifiable, your sins that you think, well, they're not really so bad, all of them which God looks at in abhorrence and horror and says, I could never do that. I could never do that. But he forgives you in Christ. And he calls you in Christ to forgive the same way. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
God doesn't need my good works. My neighbor does. God doesn't need my good doctrine. Um, I'm confident that there will be people in heaven who had a great deal wrong doctrinally, but who simply trusted in Jesus, whose confession was the man on the middle cross said I could come. But getting the gospel right matters because it really is the only basis for our being able to love our neighbors as ourselves. Because we can't, as God calls us to, love our neighbors as ourselves in ourselves, with ourselves as the standard for whether we can forgive or not, but love our neighbors as ourselves as we are in Christ. The gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself in the death of his son. Understanding the gospel is the only basis for being able to be truly reconciled to one another. Pray with me. Father, thank you for um, your goodness to us. That you are in Christ, not counting our sins against us. That, uh, Father, those sins that we would excuse in ourselves as uh, little sins were a horror to you and a basis for separating us for you, from you forever. And yet in Christ you took to pay the penalty for our sins. You did that out of your love. And you forgave us of all of our sins. And Father, help us to uh, understand the gospel in all of its facets. That we might truly forgive as the Lord forgave us. To forgive, Lord, not, not as the world forgives. But to forgive in a way that truly shows that you're at work in your people and that your gospel is the power for salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. Amen. Amen.